Welcome you to the latest edition of Meet Me Unusual. Well, you're starting season seven here. First episode of season seven with me as always is Alan Medlock from Red Dirt, Red Bird, and A Medlock One on Twitter. I'm Daniel Shopped on C70, the bad at C70, you know all that. Um, but kicking us off this year, much like he did last year, we've got Jeff Jones with us from, uh, well, let's see, you're at the Belleville uh, paper right now, aren't you, Jeff? I am, yes, sir. That's you can you can find my work at the Belleville News Democrat. I uh, I was not aware I was your leadoff hitter last season as well. This is becoming the tradition, apparently. Uh, you know, it's not a bad one to have, at least not from our point of view. So oh, um, I'm, I'm I'm the Matt Carpenter of your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're going to be the lightning rod. Is that what we're saying? Uh, yeah, I think it's more he's going to take some bad questions. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, he's just going to watch the bad questions. Right. It is. Yeah. I get you. All right. Uh, Jeff, let's before we get into winter stuff and. Um, the stuff that's uh, about the Cardinals now. Let's talk a little bit about last year. What was that like for you having to cover things in a very, very different way? Uh, weird. So I had a, I had a moment of, of realization, honestly, on the plane on the way back from San Diego uh, when I realized that given the extent to which I was able to travel last year with the Cardinals only playing in the Central uh, I was able to drive to nearly all of their. So they they played. I guess remember right. They played fifty eight regular season games. Uh, I was not allowed to be at three of them because the Chicago White Sox said that I was a public health risk. So that takes me down to fifty five, and I did not go to Pittsburgh. So I think it was fifty one of the fifty eight games that I was at last year, uh, plus the 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 three postseason games, and realized that if you subtract people that work for the league or that work for a team, I probably saw more major league baseball in person last year than all, but I don't 10 people, 15 people, <laughs> which was a weird thing to, to, to contemplate kind of at the end of the year. Um, you know, after a while, everything becomes routine and get used to it. I, I joked with the, the, the lady who ran the security checkpoint outside of the media entrance at Bush at one point this summer that, she had taken my temperature more in my life than anyone except probably my mother and maybe my pediatrician. <laughs> uh, was, you know, which again is an interesting thing to sort of live through throughout the summer, right? Yeah. You know, it was it was baseball. I, you know, it was not always the, the 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 crispest baseball. And to be honest, the most interesting day of baseball uh, was an otherwise nondescript day in Milwaukee where their PA system cracked out. 
and we had no fake crowd noise and no announcer and no music for, I want to say, about 10 outs or so uh, early in a game in Milwaukee. That was fascinating and, and a really good time. But otherwise, it was it, it got to be uh, routine after a while, and, and, and it was sort of surprising how quickly you adapt to it. How uh, were all the protocols to get into the stadium similar at each city? Was there a uniform deal or was it more of a state type driven so situation? It, it was a little different from city to city. So, for example, at Bush, every day uh, you, you, you arrived, they took your temperature outside before you came inside. And there was a there was a series of screening questions, the same five questions they were to ask every day. It got to the point, to be honest, where by, you know, by maybe 10 games into the season, you showed up, they beeped your head, and you said, no, 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 and they waved you on. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chicago at, at, at Wrigley was a little more involved. They you know, they did scan, they did, but they made you answer the questions, and they give you a wristband every day to mark that you had been through the screener uh, in and out of Wrigley. I'm trying to remember other other places. And then and Wrigley also did not let us sit in the main press box. They had us sit. Uh, at tables on the concourse, kind of below where the press box is at at Wrigley. Um, Cincinnati was the same way. We weren't allowed in the press box. We were we had to sit there, and I sat way down the right field line, basically in the corner directly above the Cardinal bullpen. Uh, in, in Cincinnati is where they have the quote-unquote visiting press area. Um, by the time we got to the postseason and got to San Diego, that was – that was honestly uh, what I would call an irresponsible level of screening. There was essentially no screening. Like, they checked their bags. I think there was a temperature check, but I don't remember it. Uh, and there was a shocking amount of people who worked for the Padres and, and cover the Padres uh, on the TV side, at least, who didn't even bother to wear masks. And wow. Stuff. So that was that was not great. I, uh, I I may or may not have sent a pretty snippy email to MLB uh, early in that series and, and said, hey, I know you guys are hosting the AL playoffs here. You might want to be aware that no one here is even bothering to pretend to care about the security. <laughs> that's that's uh, bad. That was yeah, that was not great. But for the, yeah. for the most part, it was you know, have you had any symptoms? Have you have you been in contact with anyone? Have you been to uh, the the one that always cracked me up at Bush was. They asked if you've been to a level four country any time in the last 14 days. Now, setting aside that I was there essentially every day, uh, and it would be impossible to travel <laughs> in that period of time, they didn't tell us what level four country was. Like, I don't know what the four levels were, and I don't know what level four is. So we were just left to guess. But I did not leave the United States this summer, so I, maybe the answer was yes. Maybe the United States is a level yeah. four country at this point. Probably is now. Yeah. Wow, was the uh, I always it's funny with the no crowd and it, it reminds me of you know the summer league basketball games when you were in school or where you go see a, a family member play. What was the difference in intensity with no with no crowd there? You know, it was really hard. I, I I would be curious to know what the answer was for players because as the season wore on, um, we asked them to be honest less and less about the crowd kind of stuff. Like we got, we wrote the early stories about how weird it was, and then we just kind of moved on and covered the baseball. And in the case of the Cardinals, obviously, given the outbreak, it was a whole other layer of, of fish to deal with, right? Um, from a from the perspective of watching the game and writing about the game, it was admittedly a little more difficult to stay dialed in and, and tune into the energy. Mm. It, it took a little more. Uh, active watching, I guess, right? To, to make sure that you were focused on all the things you needed to be focused on. So 
I definitely am looking forward to uh, assuming that spring training happens and that there's some kind of access to it, uh, having those conversations here in, I guess, about five weeks. Well, that does lead into the question of what do you know about spring training? Um, You know, I know, I guess, from all intents and purposes, it looks like it's going to be on schedule, but it seems very unlikely in a realistic sense that it will be. I I don't know. What are you what are you thinking? What I so what I know is pretty much what Andrew Miller uh, told Mm. earlier this week. And that's everybody I've talked to. They they tell me that they know as much as I do. And I tend to believe them. Um, (laughs) There is obviously an economic incentive for players to play a full season. And so players are definitely going to say we're ready to play a full season because the last thing players want to do is is leave some wiggle room there uh, and and, and give teams the ability to maybe cut back on on salaries and, 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 uh, and service time and all that good stuff. The reality of that, I don't, I don't know. I, I like everyone else was operating under the assumption that they would probably end up pushing everything back roughly a month or so uh, with the thought being that, you know, setting, setting aside, I guess, the logistics of getting fans into the stands, if they can get all of the players and all of the staff and everyone else vaccinated, uh, that cuts down significantly on certainly the risk, but also, frankly, some of the overhead operating costs and challenges that come with the season. Uh, Because they'll be, you know, if if in theory everyone is vaccinated, they will be able to maybe release, you know, release some of the security protocols. Now, if it is true that the that the, the line to get the vaccine is longer than maybe they were expecting, uh, and if they're actually going to attempt to not cut that line, which again I I am skeptical of, uh, then maybe not. Maybe they just figure, well, we played the season in the bubble before, we know how to do it, and let's just play what we have for the first fifty or eighty games, and then see what it looks like on July fourth. That's interesting. And it's funny, that was the next question I was going to ask you. Uh, I was reading a little bit about the Illinois rollout uh, earlier today. That's a, It's a big deal here in Oklahoma. And right when they opened up the uh, the portal to sign up here, it, it not necessarily crashed, but it got overloaded early. But we're, lo- we're looking at a 40-year-old mainframe of anything like that in Oklahoma. So my question to you is, are you – I know that – are how – is it going to be required for you to get into a stadium? So I don't, I, I would say, I don't think it's going to be required for me to get into the stadium. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't think they probably can do that. For yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, but well, now will it be required to access the clubhouse? Uh, I, I would imagine so. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, and to the extent that clubhouse access ever comes back in the way that it used to be, I'm sure that it will be. There was someone, uh, when we had the availability with Mike Schilt during the winter meetings, some I forget who it was, now asked Schilty if he was planning to get vaccinated, uh, which I thought was an interesting question because in my head, I'm going, the answer is yes, because they're going to tell him, get the shot or you're not managing the ball club, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I don't imagine that there is probably going to be a large preponderance of Major League Baseball players who – Whatever they may believe in their personal lives, uh, I don't imagine there's going to be anyone who's going to say, no vaccine for me, thanks, uh, but I would still like to play baseball. These, these are guys who, by and large, will do what they're told to do to get on the field. So uh, I, 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 don't, I don't imagine that being much of an issue. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't 
I mean, this year, for instance, I, you know, was not required, obviously, to be vaccinated to access the ballpark. And so I would imagine it could be the same for the upcoming season. There just may be a question of what level of access looks like. Do you think, you, you talked about maybe clubhouse access being different. Do you think there are not necessarily procedures that they that were happening in 2020, maybe in 2021, that will be permanent, but that will have those kind of, I don't know, procedural changes or, or maybe culture changes um, going forward? Yeah, my my concern, and, and I had this concern as soon as they closed, you know, if, you, if we think back to when all this kind of started and they closed the clubhouses to media during spring training, whatever it was, three, four days a week before they sent everyone home. My concern at the time was that as soon as they closed the doors, they're never going to open them back up again. And that that is not necessarily entirely a, a player-driven decision, right? Because when you look at the way teams now have in-house media departments, the Cardinals have a magazine and a website separate from the reporting that happens on media.com, whatever, you know, there are things that go up on cardinals.com that are done by team employees and they have a social media department and they have, you know, the, the Cardinals have in their own in-house content machine that is operated by team employees where they can control message. Uh, and they can also sort of dragoon these guys in, into giving them the good content because, you know, these guys, you, they work for the team and do what the team says, right? Uh, it's an entirely different proposition from dealing with independent media. So that was definitely a concern of mine, and it remains a concern. I, I think that part of part of at least what is on the side of members of the Baseball Writers Association is that Access for BBWA members is actually part um, of the CBA, but you know we're coming up on a CBA negotiation, and mm-hmm. if there's going to be give and take uh, to ask the players, you know, or the players maybe, for instance, might ask to to cut that back, and it would be hard for me to imagine a lot of ownership groups standing up for it as a part of that conversation. Mm, that, that will be interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of funny that we've, you know about this time last year, there was a lot of talk about that CBA uh, and what was going to happen. And now, even though it's a year closer, um, it feels like everybody's kind of forgotten about it. Um, do you think that's what, what we're going to kind of do is j- jump from the the frying pan into the fire as it comes to uh, different issues and get, as soon as we get done with the coronavirus, we're going to write back into owners and players being at loggerheads? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it'll be worth watching what the, negotiations look like to the extent that there are negotiations uh, to, to start the 2021 season. And if those are anywhere close to as contentious as what we saw in 2020, then I think that it is, it, it, it portends very bad news uh, for labor peace in major league baseball. And I, you know, I think that it was, it was a rough summer in the lead up to getting baseball off the ground. And there was a lot of, mistrust laid bare and a lot of negotiating through the media that that obviously is not necessarily productive all of the time um the thing that strikes me is that when you look at you know you look at what is happening on the free agent market and you look at what is happening with big market teams who are drastically cutting back to the down to the studs that is going to be based on claims of loss that when you head into a financial negotiation, the players are going to say, okay, you would like us to give up X, Y, and Z because you say that you have lost this amount. 
we would like you to substantiate that, please. And they're not going to just take the word of the owners for it. And so the question will be, are the owners able to show some sort of, you know, sufficient documentation of this financial state? Or is it just going to be a bunch of accounting tricks, which is what I tend to believe that it is. It's the distrust. It seems so, it's, it's so terrible. And it, it, what it's one of those, the one that's out in the open is the, the, uh, negotiating tool with the designated hitter right now where both sides seem to want it, but no one wants to give it up. And then you hear, you know, you know, Tony Clark come out immediately say, no, we're playing 162 games. And, you know, and on the flip side, the owners were saying that, I know we just can't do that. And that even started last season. Do you see a situation to where they start on time and don't end on time and it's not a COVID situation? Like they walk out. Yeah, I have a hard time believing that would happen. Good. In part part because I think that the lesson of the 94 strike, and and I think I want to flag here briefly, is that when you look at the the control person as designated by MLB, as as sort of the, the, the lead of an ownership group or the owner of a team, of the 30 teams, there is exactly one team where the control person today was also the control person in 94 when the strike happened. That's Jerry Reinsdorf for the White Sox. Everybody else has, has either turned over ownership or in the case like of Baltimore, for example, Peter Angelos is like 94 years old and his son runs the team, that kind of thing. Um, and, and so to the extent that there are institutional lessons that still exist from that strike, one of them is, is going to be about, I think, the ugliness of walking out in the middle of a season. Um, the other thing to note here is that the CBA, as I understand it, at least does not allow that now, right? Like this, this oh, okay. is, the CBA does forbid strikes and does forbid lockouts as long as there is a valid agreement in place. And so when the agreement expires in the off season after the 21 season, then it's a whole other, it's a whole other ball of wax, but whether or not, you know, there could be an action in the middle of the season. I, I, I would I would be surprised. I would be very surprised. I think. I think. I think. Once the season starts, they're going to finish it. Perfect. Well, and then you know, pre-COVID, I never would have asked that question because I thought, well, those days are gone. It's not going to happen. But I felt like they had so much egg on their face in the way that they were negotiating, like you said, through the media during a pandemic when everybody else was hurting, and that, that didn't seem to bother them. Well, <laughs> you know, and, it, and you know, and one thing that that I don't, like, I don't, you know, ninety-four strike. I was, I, I had just turned seven years old. When it yeah. Happened, so I have a very limited memory of it existing, but I've listened to guys talk about it. And I've, I've, I've heard more than once I've heard commission and, and Brian Bartow who works in PR for the Cardinals talk about the experience of that. And the Cardinals were in Miami when the strike hit and they flew down on the team plane uh, and the players came together to out of pocket, pay for a private plane to fly back to St. Louis and the team jet flew back essentially empty. Strike hit at midnight in the middle of a series against the Marlins, and that was it. There was no, there was no flying the team back on the team plane. They were on strike, Uh, and so like Tom Pagnazzi rounded up a bunch of guys and they chipped in for a jet back from Miami back to St. Louis. Wow, that's incredible. Back to town, and it's that's the reality of the of a midseason stoppage is that kind of minutia that 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 changes things like that. Well, and that that's what kind of scares me because the the lead up to it has a lot of the same feel right now. Um, you know, it, about the time you probably don't remember, Daniel, let me know if you do or not. 
I remember that everybody was desperately trying to avoid it to where ABC started putting together, putting back on Monday night baseball, which they hadn't done in years. And they were leading up to it and they had these, all these new graphics and Al Michaels and, and McCarver were doing it. And it was, it was crazy, but it had this ominous feeling that this was just the, the, the calm before the storm. And when the lights went out, man, they went out and it was really contentious and it kind of has a lot of the same feeling, but it, it, you know, I wanted for, I want to say it just can't get that bad again. And I hope that I'm just, you know, I hope it's not naive for me to say that. I think that if there is to be a saving grace of this, it will be that we're already looking at a situation where the 2020 season was a hundred games short. Uh, the 2021 season could be, I don't know, 20, 50 games short. Maybe mm-hmm. that's still possible. Mm-hmm. And so if you're talking about a lost year, essentially a play, a lost year of pay for a lot of these guys, um, there may not necessarily be the will that would be, that, that would be required to sustain a, a labor action. And so whether or not it's in the long-term interest of players or not, maybe there's a possibility that that's just frankly the kind of general direness of the situation uh, might, might prevent unextended work stoppage. But I, if I'm being honest, I'm I'm not optimistic. I I, I would be an an interesting I guess bet to make would be whether there are more regular season games played during the 2021 or 2022 seasons. And I yeah. do not know where I would put my money in that proposition. Would it move the barometer at all to you if Lindor signed a huge deal tomorrow? Um. It would not because I think the Mets are a unique animal in okay. this wilderness, right? I, I think that I think that the Steve Cohen factor is. I, I mean, I, I've, I've been thinking about this like the last time a professional sports team made such was was, was so dramatically changed by a change in ownership, and I, I think if you went kind of like. City by city, you could have, you know, I'm, I'm sure Cubs fans that when the Ricketts took over, X, Y, and Z thing happened. And I'm sure Marlins fans feel a certain way about Jeter. But in thinking about like the world at large, the closest comparison I can draw to the Steve Cohen Mets is maybe the Mark Cuban Mavericks, right? Mm. In terms of a guy who understands kind of the value of his platform and has a desire to be a public facing person who is ostensibly committed to winning above all else and, and will put every nickel behind it that's necessary. And and so, you know, the Mets to me represent maybe a, a unique animal in this situation. And so a Lindor deal would not maybe be the kind of signal that I would think would be. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you, like you said, going t- town by town, the, the change from, the last couple of years of the brewery to the current ownership of the Cardinals was sure. significant as well, at least for this area. Now, you know, <laughs> there could be an argument that that's a different, a different outlook right now. Uh, let's get into, I'd say we could get into the moves of the off season, but then we could just now end the show because there haven't been any moves of the off season. Yeah. 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 That, <laughs> I, I, I somehow I, I that one slipped. I don't know how I didn't. Like we could get into that one, but the, um, I, I know I've seen you interacting on Twitter. This has not been a big surprise. I don't think it's been a big surprise to anybody, but definitely hasn't been a big surprise to you. And you don't seem to be thinking it's going to change anytime soon. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, that's extremely fair to say. I, I, 
I, I would, I again, when when you look at sort of Fangraphs, great this. Fangraphs on their roster resource page has a very detailed breakdown of, of, of payroll dollars and anticipated money that might go into uh, that, that might go into arbitration and and buyouts, etc. That the teams are paying. The Cardinals don't really have much wiggle room to cut back. I want to say that right mm-hmm. now they're something like twenty to twenty-five million below their opening day number from twenty twenty, um, and. And there, I, I say they're they're projected opening day number, right? So not like the number they actually paid given sixty games, but a, but a one sixty two opening day number. Um, and they have been very clear that they they are they are cutting salary this offseason. And so with Wainwright and Molina both still free agents and not that much room left between the two, I yeah, I don't. If you're out there holding your breath for JT Real Muto, you should not do that. Uh, if you're out there holding your breath for Eddie Rosario, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that either. Wow. I know that you and I had spoke toward the end of the season, and I think it was even into the Cardinal season, into the uh, World Series a little bit, and we were kind of talking about how they can improve, and I was throwing some questions off of you. Even when you said that uh, there's a chance that, that Colton Wong is non-tendered, were you a little surprised when it happened? Honestly, no. I I wow. expected Colton Wong to be non-tendered. I and I, I you know I was not able to lock that down that he would be in a way that I would be satisfied to. Mm-hmm. Um, but suffice to say, and and you all you both will probably remember this: the day that Colton Wong hopped on the gram uh, and and posted a "Thank you, St. Louis, we love you," mm-hmm. Picture, mm-hmm. whatever it was, ten days before the non-tender deadline. I, he and I talked that day. He told me that it was just we were just very happy to have the support of the fans. But I mean, look, I, I, I've, I, I shouldn't say I've known Colton Long for three years. You know, we're like we're not social acquaintances, right? But I've covered Colton Long for three years now. We've had a lot of conversations, and we talked. And I, it was very clear to me that day that he was he knew that he knew that day that the non-tender was coming. Um, or, or at least that it had been strongly suggested to him by his representation that it was likely to happen. And, and frankly, I think that was clear kind of coming down the stretch, even into the postseason, just by by roster logic and by, by what I thought was likely to be kind of the, their their desire for the offseason. And lo and behold, that appears – well, I mean, that is. That is what is happening. Wow. There, there, have, been, there have been reports of Mo being extremely – up front with these guys. And, you know, we heard about that with several players that he had approached, you know, Lance Lynn, uh, Matt Holiday, guys like that about that weren't coming back. Um, that wouldn't surprise me if he did have that. I think that you're probably right about Wong knowing. I want to know, do you think that conversation has been had with Wainwright? And so I don't, um, I, yeah, so the short answer is no, I don't think that conversation has been had with Wainwright. And the reason that I don't think so is that Adam Wainwright is not an Atlanta Brave. Uh, okay. If you look at what the Braves did this offseason, the Braves spent a bunch of money on, was it Drew Smiley? And who was the other pitcher? They signed two starters. Charlie Morton. Morton, Charlie Morton. They signed two starters, yeah, relatively early and kind of jumped the line on a bunch of guys uh, to, to get two pitchers signed early in the offseason. And the gap, I guess, in money between what they would get from, say, uh, a Smiley to a Wainwright is significant enough to me that I think if Adam Wainwright knew that the Cardinals were not going to be giving him an offer, that he that they probably would. He would have ended up there. 
the the intersection of the Wainwright and Molina markets is really interesting to me because my read on the situation is that of the two, Wainwright is more committed to being back, but Molina has fewer options. Wow. And so it creates a really weird dynamic where I think I think if Yadier Molina got a contract offer from a handful of teams tomorrow that met his boundaries, he would be gone. And I think if Adam Wainwright got that same offer, he would maybe run it up the flagpole with the Cardinals one more time to see if he could stay. Wow, that's interesting because that was the next question I was going to ask you of, you know, with uh, Anaheim lurking to me with Molina and maybe a handful of others. I don't even know if it was a handful at this point. I wondered if it would be a situation where he, he would rally back or, you know, rally back and say, Hey, look, this is out here. Should I take it? It's funny that you say that about Wainwright. Cause I was kind of thinking the opposite of that. Yeah. I, and, and I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I do not get the impression that Adam Wainwright is Eager to leave for a number of reasons, right? Like there are there are a wide variety of of, of reasons why I think he would be or why he would maybe prefer to stay, um, up to including like little meta stuff, right? Like with for for example, when we had our our again our availability with Chill during what would have been the winter meetings, uh, he is staying on Saint Simon Islands this winter, which happens to be where Adam Wainwright lives. <laughs> and it's a 15 square mile island, right? This is not a big place. Uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm sure these are guys who have seen each other during the winter, uh, which is not to say that, like, Mike Pope moved to Georgia to, to hang out with the Wainwrights, but it's more like this, clearly that relationship is ongoing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's continued contact. And I also think that there is probably an extent of community involvement, which maybe is more... Is is more tied is more is more closely tied to the Wainwrights than necessarily uh, is, is tied to Yadier Molina at least in St. Louis. I also think that, and again, this may be a little bit self reinforcing because of the two, it is clear to me that around the league, more teams would be interested in Adam Wainwright, and that being the case, and that he has not signed elsewhere, to me is an indication that he would prefer not to leave. There was, I don't know, I guess maybe they even put it out early on, some talk of the the package deal between these two. Like they wanted to play on the same team and they wanted it, at least in the, you know, at least their public statements, they wanted it to be St. Louis, but if it wasn't, they still wanted to be somewhere else. Does that, I mean, one, is that you think that's at all accurate? And two, does that factor in a little bit with Adam Wainwright waiting to see where Yadi Molina goes and deciding whether he wants to follow? I think it's accurate in as much as all things being equal, they would, sure, they'd like to play together. Uh, but I don't think that it's, I certainly don't think that it's any kind of a breaking point for either of them. Um, the team that I was told had had inquired about both of them, again, was Atlanta. That Atlanta early in the offseason had, had sort of pieced together what it would look like to have a Wainwright and Melinda combination come in uh, and, and, and join the Braves this winter. Now, clearly, Given what they've done in the pitching market, that doesn't appear to be likely a thing that they would that they're going to pursue. And so that leaves the question of, you know, is there a team that fits where both of those players could go? And I, I think the answer is not really right. I don't. I have a, I have a really hard. I guess I guess what I should say is I have a hard time imagining Adam Wainwright pitching anywhere next season except for 
St. Louis, Atlanta, Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think that any of those three places – well, okay, I should say, obviously St. Louis could accommodate both of them. Atlanta probably no longer could, uh, and Kansas City is not a fit for Molina. So right. – Given that, I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily maybe at, at the front of the line for those. Do you, do you think the Cardinals are completely uh, prepared for Molina to move on if it happens? Um, mentality wise, in the front office, or is not to get you in trouble? Is there anybody in the front office that's completely fine with that move? <laughs> wink, wink. I don't. That that honestly, I don't. I don't know. I have a really hard time figuring out the answer to that question. I, you know, if you, if you rewound, for example, to before the Goldschmidt trade, it was very clear to me that they were, they were happy to move on from Carson Kelly. Like Mm -hmm. it was clear to me that season when, when Carson got his opportunities as much as they existed, that, that, that Kelly existed as trade bait for the Cardinals and that there was not much serious consideration to him taking over for Yadier Molina at any given time. Um, With Kisner, I don't, I don't get that same vibe. Now, part of it is part of it is that there's a different manager, uh, and and with with Kelly, Mike Matheny is not a guy who criticizes players to the media, and Carson Kelly is maybe the only guy I heard him outwardly criticize to reporters ever. Uh, and and I think it was more. It was it was not like it was not aggressive criticism. It was like, well, Carson needs to be doing X, Y, and Z better. Which is very mild, but it was not a thing that, that we heard from Matheny say basically ever, uh, especially near the end, basically ever about any of his players. And so that, to me, I think was was, was a pretty strong flag that that Kelly didn't have a lot of future in St. Louis. But Kisner, with Kisner, <laughs> I don't know. It, it's it's difficult to read because if you were to just if you were, for example, to to run a season of out of the park baseball with current Yadier Molina and current Andrew Kisner as the catcher for the Cardinals, I'm sure the Sim would probably spit out better numbers for Kisner than Molina. I have no doubt about that. Um, It is very hard, I think, to sort of – it is very hard to measure the impact that Yadier Molina has on the pitching staff and the impact that they think Yadier Molina has on the pitching staff. Mm. And, And to what extent that will color their decision. Certainly the Cardinals will value him much more highly than any other team in the league will. At the same time, if the argument for keeping Molina is that he is an, is, he's a manager of the staff, number one, I mean, Kisner came through the minors with basically all of these guys, right? Like not Michael, it's not Wainwright, but you look at the rest of the pitching staff, these are guys that Andrew Kisner grew up with and have caught for years and years in most of these cases. Uh, but but also they pay Mike Maddox a lot of money uh, <laughs> to be one of the best pitching coaches in the league, and so is there is there a strain of thought that they could survive without the Adi or Molina? Yes, there is. And and if Molina signed, I I guess the the, the the short way to say this is I think they are prepared for whatever choice that Yadi or Molina makes. If the choice is that he wants to come back, I am fairly confident that it will be on their terms and not his. Wow. We saw f- from Yachty this offseason, well, as he does, he went to Instagram, you know, kind of this idea of where should I play and, and some other comments that were a little bit, maybe a little bit surprising given the fact that he spent 15 years in St. Louis. Um, 
are his roots just not as deep as we as fans might think um, that they should be for after that kind of that kind of time period in one place? Well, what the thing that I would say is it's it's not that his roots aren't deep, but I think that and again this is this is my understanding of him and and, and mm-hmm. based on sort of what I have been told by people around him, I guess. And and he views the relationship with the Cardinals as a relationship of mutual respect, right? They the team respects him and he gives him respect in return. And and he he sincerely has strong connections to people who have been around the organization for a long time. You know, the fact that the Cardinals season ends on the same night that, that Bob Gibson dies uh and Yadier Molina is on Zoom and he he is weeping, just openly mm-hmm. weeping uh, about the death of Bob Gibson. That is that is not a thing that he was faking, right? This is there is right. there there are clearly strong connections, to, you know, that tie him to the organization. All of that being said, when the when when the Players Alliance came through uh, with their tour a couple weeks ago, I guess about a month ago now, and and passed out things to to folks in the city. There were no Cardinals players in attendance, and I was standing around with some of the reporters. Derek was there, and Annie was there, and Ben Fred was there, and we were trying to, in our heads, figure out if there are any players, any Cardinal players, who live in St. Louis year-round, and we might be wrong, but we were pretty sure the answer is no, that there was no one in town because no one lives here, and that is reflective of the reality uh, maybe of modern baseball, right? That, that it is generally a little more transactional. And so do I think Yadier Molina is going to come back one day for his statue to be unveiled and for his number to be retired and to be celebrated once, twice, five times a summer? You bet I do. Do I think that any of that would prevent him from signing a contract with the Yankees tomorrow if the Yankees said we'll give you two and 20? No, I do not think that that would prevent him from doing that. Well, if for some reason that he wound up with the Yankees or Adam Wainwright wound up or whatever, is is that just money that the Cardinals put away? Because even you know even Matt Carpenter was out, I think, saying that they needed some other bat. Would they look at spending a little bit of that? You know, whatever they budgeted, ten million dollars, five million dollars, whatever they had budgeted for Yadier Molina, toward that, or is it just savings? I'd be shocked. I, I would be really shocked if they if they were to spend a yachty sized chunk to bring in a player uh, into spring training. I think I think that there is a decent chance that they would make a Brad Miller esque addition, right? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about maybe a two million dollar player and not a five million dollar player, and you're talking about one of them. Um, and and hell, it might be Brad Miller himself, uh, especially. Yeah. DH comes cool. back. I, I think they saw enough of Brad Miller playing the infield that it's DH or bust at this point. <laughs> um, which is too bad because I, you know, from a reporter's perspective, couldn't be happier <laughs> with the Brad Miller clubhouse. Um, great guy. Really funny, really engaging, really, really and that but honestly, brief tangent, one of the one of the biggest bummers of all of this is that there are interesting folks and and really cool baseball stories in and around the clubhouse that fans are just not going to get the same access to as a result of the pandemic, right? Like Mm -hmm. Brad Miller is probably never going to play a home game for the Cardinals in front of fans. Uh, 
KK might never play a home game for the Cardinals. That's very possible that, you know, he, he just never will. Um, and that stinks because those are interesting and engaging uh, people who, you know, who deserve to be, to be adored. Right. Um, but so to, you know, anyway, the short answer is no, no, I would not expect if, you know, if you told me today that Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina in 2021 are going to make a combined $17 million. Do I think that if they were making it for not the Cardinals, that the Cardinals will spend that $17 million on someone else? No, I do not. Uh, I think maybe they would spend two or three or maybe five. But even that, you're really fortunate. Wow. So in a situation where we've seen probably more trades this offseason than we have, you know, at any point in the last two, really, is there a value trade only type situation where the Cardinals will, will do, or is it a deal where they could probably bring in somebody that may cost a little bit of money knowing that that's going to rebound quickly in St. Louis? Yeah. I don't, I don't think the Cardinals are necessarily like dollar in dollar out, but okay. I also don't think that they're super far from that. I, yeah. I don't, I don't really know. I guess what I would say is there is not a path to adding a significant player, a, two three win player that doesn't include Carlos Martinez or maybe Dexter Fowler playing for someone else next year. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, no, it's one of those two where I was trying to, it was funny after the Indians made the move yesterday, I was like, what could get Jose Ramirez who's on a fairly friendly contract, but I don't know. It's just, you could draw, they need, they, the Indians need things that the Cardinals have. But there's no situation to where those things that are tradable, they don't cost the Cardinals any money now, you know, so they would take on something. Yeah, and, and, you know, again, what Cleveland needs is outfielders, right? And, you know, could you sell them on uh, Tyler O'Neill? Probably. But what does that save you? Less than a million bucks, you know? Yeah. Could you sell them on Dexter Fowler? That's a much harder sell. But also, can you sell Dexter on Cleveland? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah. That's probably not going to happen. So, mm. yeah, I don't that that to me, unfortunately, just sort of doesn't feel. Yeah. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's the first thing I thought about their trade pieces are, you know, five hundred thousand dollars, not bringing in nine, oh. eleven and thirteen on two options. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the bottom line is that I mean, there's the reason that they want to trade the guys they want to trade and other teams know the reasons they want to trade those guys. And no one's lining up for the Carlos Martinez experience. Yeah. yeah. So if this is it, um, if this is the team that we're going to see for the most part, barring some small uh, piece here and there, what does it look like over 162 or whatever game season that we have? Is it really going to be, well, at least everybody else was worse? Yeah, I mean, it looks like a team that wins the division, right? When you, when you look at, you know, when you look at what the winner looks like for the NL Central, the Pirates are awful. Uh, the yeah. Cubs are, are, they're selling. The Cubs are sell, sell, selling. Um, the Reds apparently are, are having a fire sale. And then it's the Brewers, who, who knows? But the Brewers weren't very good last season. And so that is, that is the other layer of this for the Cardinals is when you sort of took a look at the, the global landscape and you look at the amount of money they have coming off the books going into the 22 season and you look at 
how generally dismal the division is probably going to be next season. What is the reason to go out and add 20, 30, 50 million in salary this winter? There probably is not one uh, because they're going to be in essentially like they're, they don't win. There are no extra prizes given for winning the NL central by 20 games instead of two, right? Those, the, 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 the question is, are you comfortable with the, the margin of error when you're looking at a narrower window for success? And the answer is they either are comfortable with it or they are comfortable enough with it given the way it intersects with their financial projections. Yeah, because that's what I was about to say. I mean, if they're looking at it, if they think this team is 82, 83 wins, and even if that's five, six more than they think anybody else is, that's kind of guessing that everything goes right. And as we know, very rarely does that happen. Um, but you're saying that they're probably willing, they feel like they've got enough insurance in-house to deal with whatever errors or ever issues that might come up. And And even if they don't, that the cost of certainty is greater than what they believe the value of certainty. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's uh, how much do they want to see Edmondo Sosa have the spring spring of twenty one that he did in twenty twenty? Yeah, I think I think you know I, we joked about Moroff earlier, but between Sosa and Moroff and, and and Jose Rondon, they're hoping there's a player in there, right? They're 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 hoping essentially that the amalgamation of those three guys can approximate what they got from Edmund last year. Not what they got from Edmund in, in yeah. the team because they're not, not going to happen again. But they're hoping that those three guys can approximate what they got from Edmund last year and that Tommy Edmund can play second base every day. They, you know, they might be wrong about that, but they're hoping that, that happens. Or, or, I guess, and this is not what they're hoping for, but a world where Tommy Edmund has to play a third base because Matt Carpenter continues to tumble down a cliff. Uh, and so, you know, is there is there a universe where Edmundo Sosa is the everyday second baseman by by August first? That, yeah, that universe exists. That, that yeah, I wondered about that. That is that is I think probably the you know that's the contingency plan. Now is that the contingency plan for a team that looks like it's going to win seventy six games? Maybe, uh, but, but that I think is is that the the cost of that plan is maybe preferable to them than going to sign. I don't even know who the infielder would be or trading. Yeah. I don't even know who the infielder would be who shores them up. I was a little bit surprised that we never saw Sosa last year, being that he started on the opening roster and then of course didn't yeah. come back after COVID. He, he had, my understanding is he was one of the guys that had a rough ride with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, if I remember correctly, he was one of, so he was, I think the first guy back, because there was there was a weird stretch where after they had the weekend in Chicago where they had all the guys make their debuts and they were juggling the forty man mm-hmm. every day, there was one and I, and I know it was Armando Sosa where very randomly he was activated from the COVID list and optioned on the same day. And when we asked about it, the explanation we got was very lacking. And essentially, what it boiled down to was my understanding of it at least was that MLB could not justify allowing him to stay on the COVID list because he was cleared and cured and healthy. Right. Whereas Cody Whitley, for example, Cody Whitley was on the COVID list until like the last week of the season, mm-hmm. both because he had COVID and also because he had a poor elbow when he was coming back from having had COVID. 
And somehow those two things allowed him to stay on the COVID list. It was, it was not transparent, I guess, is the rest is the best way to explain it. And so we were kind of trying to piece it together as best we could, but that my, my understanding is that, is that Sosa was one of the guys along with Lane Thomas who did not have a very easy time on his way back. Wow. Is there a situation and, you know, the Cardinals had used this before in the past and at the earliest we're five weeks away from, from spring, but would Sosa and Justin Williams have a leg up right now because their lack of options of being, could, could you see a situation where Williams makes the team and Thomas not make the team for that reason? For that reason, no. Could I see a situation where, where Williams makes a team and Thomas doesn't because Williams is left-handed and Thomas isn't? Oh, okay, yeah. Right, and so it would be a combination of those factors, right? Those things would all would all sort of come together. Uh, the question would be whether the Cardinals believe that either Williams or or Sosa would be liable to be scooped up by someone else if they had to be, if they had to be designated to get them to the minors, and that is probably not super likely, especially heading into opening day, right? Because the consideration there is is when lots of teams are moving guys through waivers at the same time, it's easier to sneak guys through. And so maybe if you DFA Edmundo Sosa, for example, on December 1st, he would get claimed. But if he did it on April 1st, he maybe wouldn't. Sure. And, and I'm sure that probably has to do with some b- names bigger than Sosa that will be out there as well at that point. Right, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned Matt Carpenter. I think one of the things that you know a lot of Cardinal fans are going to be watching this year is those plate appearances because of the vesting option for 2022. Is there really any chance that he gets that close to it, do you think, without unless he has, of course, like a, another 2018 or something? So, right, there are the two ways where he gets close would be that, would be if he's, you know, if he's a top 20 MVP kind of player. Uh, or if there are a lot of injuries on the infield, right? Like if, if Tommy mm-hmm. gets hurt and, and a, a couple guys get hurt and you have to have bodies out there, then maybe. I, I've done the calculation. I would have to look. I don't have it in front of me. He ha- It's something like 580 played a period. Yeah, something like that. It's something like that that he would have to hit this season. I would be, I would be very surprised if they let that happen. I frankly, I was surprised that they let Miller vest and mm-hmm. watching it down the stretch pretty clearly. Um, and I, part of the reason I think that Miller vested that that they let that happen was that maybe they didn't have necessarily all the pitching they thought that they had down the stretch, right? Like we found out heading into the postseason that John Gant was maybe more injured than we thought than he was for basically the entirety of the season. Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, they didn't have a lot of choice and they had to get guys out and, you know, look, they were going to the playoffs. They wanted to make the postseason. And at some point you got to put your best team on the field and that's how that happened. I, if you have, if, if Matt Carpenter has, I don't even know if he's putting up a 740 OPS. Can you really justify giving him enough plate appearances to trigger that option? That's, mm. that's a hard, that's a hard thing for me to believe. Yeah, I would think so. Especially when we saw, you know, them not want to not pick up Wong's at, which is, was cheaper, even though financially it'll be better next year. I think they would try to avoid that, which, which reminds me, I did have a question about Wong, uh, to go back a little bit being that they didn't approach him to, or didn't apparently didn't approach him to, 
you know, take like a small salary this year and extend out and, you know, kind of rework the contract. Were there other issues besides financial that came into play there? Because, I mean, for, for fans, it looked like it was just money. Yeah, it's money. It's, it was it was a cut and dried money decision. And and the thing that the thing that is, I think, important to remember, because there has been like, there has been this weird static where it's like the Cardinals didn't propose him about a pay cut, but maybe they did. And, and maybe the door is closed. Maybe the door is open. The thing that, like, there is a representative in between the Cardinals and Colton Wong, especially at this point when he was a free agent, right? And so, for example, it is not necessarily in conflict for Mosellock to say, well, the door is open with Colton Wong, or, you know, we thought about doing X, Y, and Z on a smaller deal. And for Colton Wong to say that never happened because, you know, if, for example, it went to the agent and the agent said, that's crazy, that's, you know, we're not taking a pay cut, then yeah. the Cardinals had the conversation and Wong never had the conversation, but the conversation took place all the same, right? So there are there are layers here and there are things to parse that I think are important for us to remember. So, oh, go ahead, Alan. No, 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 no. go ahead. I was going to ask some wrap-up questions and... Well, that's fine. Go ahead. It'll take us in another direction. So, since you had the uh, since you had uh, the opportunity to see so many games last year and see the new rules and whatnot, did they grow on you? Did you like them in the beginning? Would you like to see seven inning doubleheaders again? Any of those things? Uh, I would not. So, it, what I would say in rank order is the DH is fine. Like that's fine. I don't care about the DH. Yeah. Um, do I do I enjoy the strategy of moving guys around? Yeah, sure, but I'll get over it. The the runner on second base thing was less intrusive than I thought it was going to be, and I do understand its utility. Um, I would look; I'd be lying if I said I did not enjoy the occasional seventeen inning, everyone to the ballpark until two in the morning sort of thing. Yeah. It's not. It's not a lot of fun. It is murder if you have a deadline. I never have a post-game deadline, and so I don't have to worry about it that much. Uh, and it is not fun if you have to play the next day. And the other part of it, by the way, which I think doesn't get talked about enough, is that players don't like it because it, it hurts service time because it's it, it's murder for relievers. Yeah. If you're pitching a 17-inning game and you have options and you pitch the 12th, 13th, and 14th, you are getting options the next yeah. one. Yeah. Sure. Right, and players don't like it, so sure. Um, and so I didn't love it, but I, I, I understand its utility and it would be fine. The seven-inning doubleheaders is a hard no for me. Um, and I, I, I think is also probably a hard no for Major League Baseball. I, I can't imagine that sticking around in a world where – in a world where you have the ability to flexibly reschedule games, then it's not mm -hmm. a big deal. In a COVID universe where you don't know if you're going to be able to play the game that you rescheduled, then I understand why you just have to do it. Yeah, that's one. I, I have a hard time believing that they don't want that second gate. You know, that's yeah. as much as I like a doubleheader, it's, that one seems far-fetched to me. And and I think I like the DH just because of the inevitability of it. Yeah, that's, that, that is a very good point, is if they were going to treat seven-inning games – as you know, as the old school buy one ticket, see two games doubleheader, that's never going to happen. You are yeah. thousand right about it. They're wanting to sell tickets for two different games, and it's it would be hard for me to to say that they could probably sell a full price ticket to eighty percent of a game. Yeah. I I agree with that in general, but part of me wonders 
if there is, you know, the push for the players to play 162 games, but there's the push for the owners to not start till June, let's say. If they wouldn't have the split doubleheaders, have the two gates, but seven innings just because there would be, what, 30 of them uh, during the year or something like that. Again, you're right. It never go, never, never pass this year, but for 2021, whatever you're in now, um, I, I could see that being maybe a compromise issue of a way to get all the games in while still not driving everybody crazy. Cause there's two or three of them a week. And, and, and sure. If we're talking about, again, if we're talking about COVID time and, and right. put together a schedule under these constraints, then maybe like maybe, maybe we would see more of those games this year, but in, in the long term and in the mm-hmm. sense of baseball, if we assume that by 22 or 23, we're going to be back to normal. I can't imagine that sticking around. Right. Right. Yeah. So now I wanted to ask you, since some of those new rules, what would be your pace of play options to improve it? Um, well, I mean, my pace of play options would, would be not popular because they would be murder for the broadcast because they would cut down on a lot of ad time. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We talk about that on the show. All the, time. the problem is that they sell they sell ads in number of seconds, and so they can only cut so much, uh, and they can't cut it out of the commercial break. So, so, yeah. so otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, I don't know. I I don't think the three batter minimum mattered like at all. Sure. There were maybe like two situations this year where maybe something would have gone differently. And it also, by the way, affected pace of play, not one bit. Zero for completely agree. Um I I am compelled to a degree by the argument that if you made the strike zone bigger, that pace of play would get better. More broadly, I guess what I am compelled by is that the issue is not pace of play, the issue is style of play. Yes. Right. The game is the game is the game, um, but it is now a three true outcome game. And will that swing back? You know, look, there are, there are people who will tell you that baseball is cyclical and that eventually some team is going to identify uh, an area where there's a weakness for their opponents and they're going to start bunting and stealing bases. And all of a sudden it's going to be the 80s again. And maybe uh, maybe that's true. But I, I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing it. I I struggle with the thought of like moving the mound back. I know people are in favor of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe I would. I would really be interested to see what that looks like. My 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 skepticism there is that pitchers already are so fragile that if you move the mound back six inches or a foot, I think we would see an astronomical increase in the number of injuries for pitchers as guys put an extra effort to to cover that extra however long the distance would be. Um, so I, I think that, I think that this solution is probably is probably just the bigger strike zone, or maybe even just calling the zone the zone that exists in the room. yeah, and so maybe maybe the robot umpire universe fixes some of that problem. Well, and that's that's where I was kind of going with my next with my next thing is what worries me about in growing the strike zone or calling it like it's supposed to be. The human element of that, these guys are going to call the same strike zone they've called since they were ambitious high school umpires because that's the consistency that got them there, and that's not going to change. I mean, they call the same zone. So I do wonder if they were to widen it out, that would be the time you would probably have to go to some kind of robotic-type system. Yeah, I I think so. And, I, you know, I also – what I would be very curious to know, and a thing that I don't know enough about is – 
what the demographics of MLB umpire feeder system looks like, right? Because the thing that is that I think maybe we downplay in the context of umpires is that as MLB expanded throughout the 90s, the number of umpires also expanded because there were more games and so they needed more umpires to call them. Uh, and so a lot of guys got extra shots. And then when you had the math resignations of the umpires, you got some fresh blood injected. What I don't know is how deep that bench runs right now. And are there are there guys umpiring AAA who are, you know, in their 50s who are stagnated there and who are never going to move up? I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. But I do wonder if it becomes easier to transition to the robot environment. Sure, that's a great question. Uh, that's a great point. I had never thought about that because I didn't know how the the uh, I didn't know how the system worked. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's you know it's it's not as it's not as linear a path as the big leagues are, but it's the same sort of thing, right? You you know you go out and you perform, you get evaluated by your bosses, and then you move up level. Yeah, I, there, I had a buddy of mine who called at, a, at a, in the Texas League here in town. He was a local guy called in the Texas league and he was young. I mean, he's, I mean, he, at the time he was around my age and he didn't see a path. So he became an instructor. Then next thing you know, he's working for the highway patrol type situation. So I just didn't know, you know, how that worked or, you yeah, know, know, what hands you had to shake to get there. I know, I know that our umpiring schools, you know, across the country, but again, especially in like Florida, Arizona, I know that a lot of times during spring training, you'll see guys who are, who are you, one day you'll have a full big league crew and the next day, you'll have a bunch of guys who are going to be doing football games, right? Uh, and, and it's just a matter of getting these guys exposure to, to big league players and, and big league pace of play. Gotcha. Well, before we wrap it up, uh, looking at the 2021 Cardinals, and again, it's so much is up in the air, it's, it's hard to know. But if there was one person you expected to make uh, a step up or to surprise people, uh, given what you've seen, who do you think that would be? Mm, that is an interesting question. A player who would step up. Can we count Alex Reyes? Sure. If I if I were to tell you that I think that there's a decent chance that by October next season, Alex Reyes is the Cardinals' best starter, is that a step up? That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be pretty interesting. Yeah. And that's, and I could be wrong about this, right? Like it's it's possible that Alex's body is 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 the sort that that, that can't stand up to that kind of abuse. Like some guys, some guys just aren't built for the big leagues. It's not it's not a flaw. It's not anything that's wrong with them. Some guys just aren't going to hold up. But this summer was the first summer we saw Alex be healthy since 2016, and he's and he's dominant. Like just just has the kind of stuff that you can't. And that you can't you can't measure. You could spend years at driveline, and you can't come up with the Alex Reyes stuff. Um, and so, if if he really is healthy, like if he's fixed now, if he's back to the guy he was in 2016, and he if he's that guy, he will earn a spot in the rotation because he will be one of their two best starters. And it would not necessarily shock me to see him just dominate all the way through. And that, that to me is a really interesting, like he is a really interesting X factor for what the pitching staff looks like heading into this season. Because I think that, you know, you know, basically what you're going to get out of KK at this point, Um, you know, basically what you're going to get out of miles at this point. 
I, I think you you trust that Jack will be much better next season with a more regular type of year. But there are there are question marks for sure. I you know I would I would maybe buy Austin Gomber stock. I think that I think that he's going to have a big role. I was really interested to see that when the Cardinals were selling tickets for panels and what have you for winter warmup, that all of a sudden John Gant is with the starters again. That to me was a very interesting development that I don't necessarily believe in. Um, but I, I am very curious to see what the path looks like for Alex Reyes and if there's a viable, a real opportunity for him to start, because if there is, and he is healthy, then look out. That's great to hear. He's probably one of my favorite Cardinals and it's kind of leads me into my last question. And he was, he was going to be a part of it. And I kind of thought it was far fetched, but of all the money that's coming off the books this next off season that they're going to have to spend in 22 and let's just say, let's just kind of forget about um, labor strife at this point. Does any of that money go to Flaherty or Hicks? Um, Hicks, maybe. I it would. I I want to watch him for a full season and see what it looks like. You know, I, I'm sure the Cardinals would too. They, you know, they want they want to see what what a healthy Jordan Hicks post Tommy John looks like. Flaherty is a harder one for me to believe. I. I am skeptical. Well, okay. I guess I guess the way to put this is, I would be shocked if Jack were to sign an extension before there was a new CBA. Assume there's not going to be a new CBA before the season, and there's not. Uh, then I don't know that. Yeah, I, I would have a hard time seeing that come together. I guess. Um, and and so if you're looking at guys that are on the current roster who are maybe going to get some of that money, maybe you're looking at. You know, maybe you're talking about Dylan Carlson getting the Piscotti deal, right? That's a, mm. a not totally unreasonable possibility. Uh, but then, yeah, then maybe you're talking about Alex Reyes. And, and maybe you're talking about, you know, if KK isn't good next year over a full season as he was this year, maybe there's an extension to be had there too. That's that's a reasonable possibility. Do we, do we just lose Jeff? What's that? Oh, okay. I'm still here. I'm still here, but it is uh, about the time to start wrapping it up anyway. So, um, Alan, is there anything, is there anything last you wanted no, to? I don't think so. Jeff, you working on anything new any, anytime soon? Uh, at the moment I'm working on figuring out whether or not I have to go to Florida in five weeks. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, in, in, in a different universe, we'd be talking about winter warm up next weekend. Uh, there is, you know, that's happening virtually. Uh, I don't need to sell tickets to it. The Cardinals will sell their own tickets. There are some things I think look interesting on that, you know, that you should check out. I think, but, you know, we're, we're here now. We're 10 years after the uh, 2011 World Series. That's that's pretty crazy to think about. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, no, you know, we'll, the, 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 the panels from Winter Warm-Up, I'm sure, will be covered uh, thoroughly next weekend. And we'll see what happens here. You know, look, Mo told us all that, January is new December, and lo and behold, we're left in the weekend of January, and we had the blockbuster trade of the offseason yesterday. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what it portends for the Cardinals. You know, you keep your eyes on Wainwright and Molina, and then you see where the chips fall after that. Yeah. Uh, the, the problem with January being the new December for the Cardinals is it looks just the same as the old December. So, right. uh, <laughs> What happened in December in, in what happened last December? Not much. I guess two Decembers ago you had two Decembers ago, yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and and the, the December before that you have the uh, the Ozuna trade. So true, there, true. 
there is some precedent for December, but yeah, I, it's going to be a long one, a long and cold Probably. December. <laughs> gotcha. Hopefully so. All right, you can find Jeff at it's JM Jones, right? On Twitter. At JM Jones on Twitter. Uh, you follow him there if you're not already, which you probably are if you're listening to this show. I'm glad to have you again to kick off another season, and we look forward to having you back again, maybe before yeah, next yeah. January. I'll be back on in January, and I'll be the, I don't know who the leadoff guy coming into winter 20. I mean, am I the Tommy Edmund? Yeah, what? maybe so. Maybe so. That, <laughs> maybe a little bit of an interesting uh, interesting little storyline for 20, 2021 as to who, who takes that job. So, anyway, Jeff, thanks a lot, and we'll do it again. And for Jeff and Alan, I'm Daniel. Good night. Good night. Good night. They just won't go away.